My brothers and sisters, our first gospel reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Listen to God's word. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Our second reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through, 41, through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what she said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the third sermon that Tony has asked that I do, and two Sundays ago I mentioned to my father, as you know, himself a retired Presbyterian minister, that I had no idea how ministers come up with sermons on a weekly basis because just writing one a year in Tony's absence is a bit difficult. He told me a few tricks to the trade, and one was to approach a sermon by simply focusing on a Bible verse and then observing how many experiences throughout the week directly reflect upon that verse. So I decided to give it a try. On Monday, Kristen and Ellis were out of town visiting family, and I spent part of the day helping our son James get ready for his first week-long overnight camp at Fort Lone Tree, just north of Capitan. At 4 p.m., I dropped him off and drove home alone, ate dinner alone, and spent the remainder of the evening alone, finding my thoughts constantly drifting back to James. As I lay in bed, I felt a strong sense of irrational worry over him. Would someone bully him? Had he forgotten something important and was panicking? Was he laying in his bunk, homesick, and trying to hold back tears in the dark? Suddenly, I found myself unable to sleep out of sheer worry and anxiety, and so I got out of bed and retrieved my list. As the head soccer coach at McMurray University, I found that my level of worry and anxiety increased each season to the point that I found it almost impossible to enjoy anything in my life. Despite a better record each season that I coached and never being in danger of losing my job, by the, fourth, by the time my fourth season was approaching, I was consumed with constant worry about player injuries leading to losing, leading to the embarrassment of being fired, leading to having to find a new job and move my family. I would wake up at night paralyzed with worry and dreaded the arrival of the approaching season. A few weeks prior to the start of the season, I searched for verses in the Bible dealing with worry and anxiety and decided to compile them on one sheet. I then printed off multiple copies and placed them everywhere, in my car, my office, next to my bed, inside my travel bag, so that any time I felt anxiety over the things I could not control, I could read these verses until these irrational fears subsided. Early on, there were times I would spend 10 to 15 minutes, multiple times a day, repeatedly reading these verses, 
But over the course of the season, my anxiety gradually decreased, and I found myself able to enjoy each day, each practice, each game, and not controlled by the uncontrollable. And to this day, the list stays with me. On Tuesday morning, I took the time to read several, several sermons online from an array of denominations regarding worry and anxiety and found that a few took the narrow view that worry and anxiety are simply sins against God. One sermon I read went so far as to say that even if we believe in God or believe God to be the creator of everything and the savior of all who believe in him, that by worrying, regardless of intensity, we are saying to God that we don't really believe that he can take care of us. But think about it. We all need a certain level of worry and anxiety in our lives. A healthy amount of worry or anxiety motivates people to engage in behaviors that are beneficial to their health, like applying sunscreen to help prevent skin cancer or scheduling year yearly screenings for other types of cancer. The worry of a potential wildfire in Ruidoso spurs us to get prepared and organized for such an occurrence. Worry and anxiety exist on an inverted U-shaped curve. That is, too little and you're not motivated enough to do anything, and too much, too much and you are too paralyzed for, by fear for action. In the middle lies the healthy balance of worry and anxiety that motivates us daily. Worry and anxiety are not just a modern problem. It was an issue in the first century, and the New Testament gives a very specific instructions about dealing with anxiety. The Greek word for to worry is meriamau. You can find it in 17 verses of the New Testament, usually translated into to care, to be anxious, or to be concerned. Most of the time, meriamau is bad, as when Jesus warned his disciples against worry. In the Sermon on the Mount, he told them not to worry about what they would eat or drink or about what they would wear. He scolded a distracted Martha for allowing her anxiety to control her while her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. However, Merimau can sometimes be good. When Paul tells us not to be anxious about anything, he is not encouraging a careless, apathetic, or carefree attitude toward people or problems. Indeed, throughout Paul's teachings, the word concern is the same as the word for anxious, but clearly, it is not anxiety, but proper concern that he is expressing. We see Paul use this word for anxiety, meriamau, when speaking of Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Literally, what Paul is saying is that I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine anxiety for your welfare. God does not want us to be apathetic to the world around us, and as Christians, we are taught to care deeply about people and their problems and should comfort and compassionately care for those in need. On the opposite end of the spectrum from apathy lies worry, extreme worry, worry which involves unpleasant and persistent thoughts about future events that we either have no control over or quite often never even happen. This type of worry often does not have a specific cause and lacks an object to focus on. And when combined with a feeling of no control of the world around us can sometimes make humans collectively do strange things. How else do you explain hoarding toilet paper, toilet paper at the start of a pandemic? We have owned storybook cabins for almost seven years and in that time I've had the wonderful opportunity to interact with a wide array of people from so many different backgrounds and with so many different viewpoints and have noticed more than a few trends along the way. 
Through my conversations, I now firmly believe that there exists an age where many older adults become nostalgic and harp on how the country is not what it used to be, often pinpointing one aspect within society that is the sole reason for why the young folks in this country are going to ruin it for us all. Every young generation develops new art forms to describe their feelings and frustrations with the world around them. And just because older generations maybe don't like the symbols they use or don't understand why they look the way they do, will collectively worry and fret over what is wrong with these people. Now understand, I'm not picking on anyone here, but over the last few years, I have encountered a parade of older guests at Storybook Tell Me, including a guest I chatted with on Wednesday afternoon, that video game violence is the primary cause for most of what is wrong in our country, the root cause of mass shootings, and that laying around all day playing these games is why just about every young person under the age of 30 is, as he said, as lazy, misguided, and unmotivated as the youth of this country have ever been. Now, where have I heard that before? Oh, yes, in the 1990s when I was in high school and college. Older Americans looked at my peers and I and thought that we too were a lazy, misguided group of young people and worried about placing the future of the country in our hands. Placed all blame on rap music going so far as to hold congressional hearings on the issue. Yet I can confirm that despite listening to Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, I have plenty of friends that grew up to be doctors, attorneys, ministers, teachers, and other positive contributors to society. Some of you can remember a time when the clean-cut and straight-laced fathers that had endured the horrors of World War II looked at their long-haired, bell-bottom-wearing sons and railed about the effects of listening to rock and roll music, losing sleep over the gyrating moves of Elvis Presley and the appearances of John Paul George and Ringo, and, no doubt, thought you and your peers were lazy and misguided compared to their generation. A newspaper editorial in the 1950s stated that many young people are so pampered nowadays that soon they will have forgotten that there was ever such a thing as walking. Skip back a few generations to the 1820s, and we find the reverend and teacher William Jones proclaiming that fiction novels, yes, fiction novels, were to blame for the troubles in society because they had a fatal effect upon the morals of young people by disguising good and evil with false colorings and unjust representations. So if you are one that is currently worried about the youth of America today, maybe you can find comfort in knowing that this cycle of worry repeats itself on a generational basis. I mean, going back to the fourth century, Aristotle proclaimed that the youth of his day, quote, think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. But on a more serious note, the increasing and extreme feelings of worry and anxiety many of us are feeling about the world around us is becoming a serious mental health issue in this country. On Thursday, I received a phone call from one of the homeowners that we used to manage his cabin for, and during our conversation, I asked how his son was doing. His son is a former high-ranking official in the Trump administration and left midway through President Trump's term. And when I say high-ranking, I mean routine meetings in the Oval Office, high-ranking. His father relayed to me that he is still in Washington, D.C., but that he, along with many other level-headed and capable Republican and Democratic politicians and government, government officials, may find it hard to believe, but yes, they do still exist, are frustrated as they find it harder and harder to have their voices heard over those that create a constant stream of extreme or outlandish sound bites. The political arena has always been a tough one, 
But gone are the days when we elected officials, sent them to Washington, and then reviewed their effectiveness several years later when election time rolled around. Political opinion shows and commentary, whether on TV, radio, or internet, have exploded in number and popularity in recent years. And what gets your voice to stand out, what drives ratings on television and clicks on the internet, or fundraising an election to an office, is convincing your audience, nowadays at an ever-increasing intensity, that the other side is inherently evil and is on a mission to destroy your way of life. Now, this tactic is nothing new in American politics. When we hear the name George Wallace, we think of the hardline segregationist governor of Alabama, forgetting that when he was the losing candidate for governor in 1958, he held a moderate and some say, would even say liberal view on segregation and race relations. But what is different about today is that between television, the internet, and our phones, we are collectively fed a steady stream of fear, a steady diet of fear, on a 24-hour cycle that is almost impossible to avoid. And as a result, many of us have become, have become too paralyzed with worry and anxiety to rationalize the world around us or consider a different viewpoint from the one told to us each night by a talking head on television. Worry has been described as a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind that, if encouraged, cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. This biblical word for worry Meriamau is a compound of two Greek words, meriso, to divide, and nous, the mind, and is the form that Jesus used when he said that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. I received a sad reminder this week as to just how far being fed a steady diet of fear can divide not only our individual minds, but our nation as a whole. When I received a meme from a friend that read, when someone tells me they are a Christian, I now have to ask, traditional Jesus, conservative Jesus, or liberal Jesus? Just looking at the variety of posters with a reference to Jesus from rallies outside the Supreme Court, or the memes shared daily on, on social media depicting our Lord confirming a certain political position, and it is sadly apparent that we really have gone so far as to slant and pervert the teachings of Jesus to fit our humanly viewpoints and agendas. Indeed, a search on Amazon reveals the following book titles. How Would Jesus Vote? Is Jesus a Democrat or a Republican? Read his lips. Jesus would be a Democrat. Jesus was a Republican. Jesus was a liberal. Jesus and John Wayne. And my favorite, Jesus didn't ride an elephant. We have all heard someone say, I sure wouldn't want to bring a child into this world right now. And maybe some of you think that way today, considering all that is going on around us. But take a deep breath if you feel this way, and take comfort in the words that Jesus spoke to Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We are in an election year, so you know the headline writers will be working overtime. Just this week, I've read headlines regarding the recession that read Americans fearful over gathering storm clouds. U.S. will plunge into a recession. American economy on the brink, and on and on and on. But realize that starting with an eight-month slump in 1945, 
The U.S. Has e economy has weathered 13 different recessions since World War II. Roughly one every six years, and on average, America's post-war recessions have lasted only 10 months, while periods of expansion have lasted an average of 57 months. Further, in the 246-year history of this country, we have endured other gas shortages and fluctuations in gas prices, interest rate instability, unfavorable Supreme Court rulings, amendments and repeals to our Constitution, stock market crashes, Great Depressions, world wars, race equality issues, presidential assassinations, impeachments, pandemics, and divisions so wide that we went to war and slaughtered each other in great numbers. But we are led to believe this is the worst it has ever been. And many of us are paralyzed with fear, believing it will only get worse because social media and cable news reinforces that idea every minute of every day. According to scripture, at the heart of worry is an intense struggle to rest upon God's care and power amid a broken and unstable world. We are asked to live with godly concern for those around us, which is solely dependent upon God and firmly rooted in prayer. When we don't, we swing to the extremes on the graph I described earlier, becoming either apathetic to others' needs or paralyzed with worry and anxiety. In both cases, effectively withdrawing from society, unable to be who God needs us to be for others. And when we shift our priorities and allegiances from God and the rock that is his kingdom to the talking heads and politicians on TV or the constant messages of negativity coming through our phones, we are placing our hopes and confidences in something or somebody that is highly unstable. On Friday morning, the parents of a former player of mine were passing through Ruidoso and stopped by our office to say hi. Their son, Hayden, will forever stand at the top of the list of all the players I have ever coached. Hayden is one of the kindest and most gentle individuals that I have ever had the good fortune to know. Hayden walks closely by Jesus' side and truly lives for each day, innately curious and perceptive to God's world around him. On the field, he was an unbelievable soccer player, full of so much determination and grit, but always there to offer an opponent a word of encouragement or a hand to lift them off the ground. Hayden played for Bryan College in Tennessee, where he was a two-time NAIA National Scholar Athlete. And prior to his senior year, Hayden married the love of his life, Callie, with whom he had been in love with since before high school. Callie had spent her teenage years in and out of the hospital battling brain tumors, and it was Hayden that sat by her bedside for hours, keeping her laughing and her spirits up. Although he had the opportunity to play professionally after his college career, Hayden decided to pursue his career in the medical field, and in July of 2013, he and Callie packed up his beloved TJ Cruiser and moved to Alaska to work at a hospital and live in the wild frontier, a dream come true for an, out, an avid outdoorsman like Hayden. Three months before he moved to Alaska, and coincidentally during my fourth season when I had made my list and was working through my struggles with worry and anxiety, I was in my office around 11 p.m. watching, excuse me, unhappily watching film from a heartbreaking overtime loss that my team had suffered earlier that evening. The quiet was suddenly interrupted by the ringing of my cell phone. It was a former player of mine and teammate of Hayden's calling to tell me that Hayden had passed away in his sleep earlier in the week from an undiagnosed heart condition. He was 26 years old. For me, Hayden's story serves as a constant reminder in my life that none of us are promised tomorrow. 
One tragedy of life is that too often so many of us worry and lose sleep about so many things that will never occur or will ever really amount to anything that in doing so we miss the small gifts that God places around us each day. Today, this day, this moment right now that we are together in this sanctuary is a special gift from God. Each Sunday we are offered the opportunity to come in from the world to rest and listen to His words. Yet throughout each service, how often do our minds wander to irrational worries and to-do lists for the upcoming week? Think back to a time in which you have done something nice or given a small gift to someone and they were too distracted and hardly noticed, or worse, did not even notice at all. Although you were not seeking recognition and praise, I am sure it still left you feeling a bit empty or sad. I wonder if God frowns and shakes his head when each of us misses his faintly placed gifts or his words of comfort because our focus was elsewhere. So I encourage each of you to make your own list like I did. I can promise that it will help you through the times that the world feels out of control or you feel controlled by things out of your control. When you feel the anxiety that Martha felt, pull out your list and quietly sit at the feet of Jesus until your worries subside. I'm an avid listener of the national public radio program that airs each Saturday called This American Life. And one of my favorite episodes is about a young man that decided to walk across America shortly after he graduated from college. He relied on the hospitality and help of people he met along the way and would ask each that if they could take all of what they had learned in life and go back and give their 23-year-old self a word of advice, what might they say? One southern woman in her 80s told him, I wouldn't worry so much. I used to worry myself to death, and now I realize the things you worry about, how many of them really ever come true? Very seldom. Amen.